Ben and boys and girls, you know, kind of like uh, the kids trying to guess what these different pictures are, you know, it's interesting to discover children's perspectives on God. Because small children especially can have some interesting perspectives on God. And I recently came across a list of actual questions that children had written to God. I just want to share four of those with you. This first one, Dear God, are you a ninja? Is that why I can't see you? It's a good question, right? Yeah. Dear God, are you really invisible or is that just a trick? Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? Dear God, I'm an American. What are you? These are cute. We chuckle when they come from children. But childish ideas about God aren't so cute when they come from adults. Amen? And the sad thing is so many people never outgrow those kinds of notions of God. And when adults hold on to childish notions of God, they can impact our world and our lives. They influence our decisions. They influence the people around us. They carry far-reaching consequences. I mean, if our view of God is faulty, the choices we make are going to be faulty. What we teach our kids about God and about the world will be faulty. The kind of witness that we bear for Christ, the way we lead and serve our churches, will be faulty if our view of God is faulty. But so many Christians today, so many people in churches today, suffer from spiritual myopathy. At the very least, Like those pictures, our vision of Jesus can be blurred and unfocused, but at the very worst, we can be actually blind to the truth and the reality of the God of the Bible. In today's passage, Jesus is going to address why we tend to sometimes fail in clearly seeing Him and what we can do to overcome our spiritual blindness, our spiritual nearsightedness, so that we can see Him clearly just as He is and as He is at work in our lives and in our world. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. And I want to give us a little bit of a recap because we've kind of skipped a passage that we covered earlier. Back when I preached on the feeding of the 5,000, I can compare it and contrast to that with the feeding of the 4,000. So that happens in Mark 8, 1 through 13, the feeding of the 4,000. So last week, we saw that Jesus, after he had this big confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he and the disciples left the region of Galilee. They went all the way up to Tyre and Sidon, deep into Gentile territory. They met the Syrophoenician woman, and Jesus cast the demons out of her daughter. And then he went back down to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the Gentile side, to the Decapolis, where he healed a man who was deaf and mute. Okay? While he was on his way back from that towards the other side, the Jewish side of Galilee, while he was still in Gentile territory, in Mark 8, 1 through 13, Jesus feeds 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish, and they have seven large basketfuls of leftovers. And that's where the story then takes us to what we're going to look at today. And in this first story, we see what it is that keeps us from seeing Jesus clearly. Let's just read the first two verses there. Uh, Mark 8, 14 and 15. So they just had this amazing miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. You talk about a failure. They had seven large basketfuls left of bread. They forgot to bring any, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, The disciples and Jesus are in the boat. 
going back across the Sea of Galilee, right after this miracle, and the disciples are worried about not having enough bread for lunch. Now, can't you just hear the disciples? You know, Peter looks over at, at Andrew and says, I thought you were going to get the bread. And he says, I thought Nathaniel was going to get the bread. And they said, no, no, Matthew said he was going to get the bread. And they're just all pointing fingers and arguing, you know, about you know, who forgot to bring lunch. They got one loaf of bread. But Jesus is trying to warn them of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's think about what yeast is, what leaven is. You know, yeast, leaven, that's what you need to make your dough rise. Those of you that bake, you put some yeast in your, in your dough and it helps the bread to be light and fluffy, helps it to rise. And yeast, when it's in the dough, it's small. If you ever looked at a piece of yeast, it, it's, it's really tiny. And when it's worked into the dough, you can't see it. You can't look in there and see the yeast. It's hidden. It's small. But you can see its effects, can't you? You can watch what it does to that dough as it permeates, as it spreads through the dough. And a little bit of yeast can have a dramatic effect on a large amount of dough. Now, to the Jewish people, yeast or leaven came to represent sin, evil, wickedness. Now, why is that? Well, it goes back to the Passover. Remember when when the children of Israel were in Egypt enslaved and and the final plague was the death of the firstborn and God said that if you take the blood of a a one-year-old lamb, a spotless lamb, put it on the doorpost, the the death angel will pass over. And God said through Moses that when you bake your bread, don't put leaven in it because you're not going to have time for it to rise. You're going to have to make haste and leave. So as they commemorated every year, remembered the Passover... They would celebrate that. They would use unleavened bread as a remembrance of that. Well, over time, there developed this ritual with the Seder meal where towards the beginning of the meal, and the Jews do this to this day, they will go through the house and find any piece of leavened bread and they will take it outside and burn it. And they do that to symbolize the removing of sin and corruption from our lives. So that's what yeast came to represent, sin and corruption. Paul picked up on these themes in his letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, he's meaning the Passover, let us keep it not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And Paul says something very similar in Galatians chapter 5. But what is the yeast that Paul is talking about? Well, you have to read the context. And here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, before and after this passage, Paul is talking about sexual immorality in the church. That's the wicked, malicious yeast he's referring to. In Galatians 5... Paul is talking about legalism. These people that thought that they had to keep the Jewish law to the letter to follow Jesus. So Paul saw both a liberal attitude towards sex and a legalistic attitude about keeping the Jewish law. He saw those as equally problematic. Because they were both insidious attitudes and beliefs that could work their way into the church and cause lasting damage as their ideas and their influence spread like yeast does in dough. That's what Paul meant. But what does Jesus mean by the yeast of Herod and the Pharisees? What what is he referring to? Because yeast, as we can see, the metaphor can be anything. It can be lots of things that corrupt us. Lots of evil attitudes and and false teachings that can spread through the church and, and corrupt God's people. 
And, and, and truly, there are lots of different kinds of yeasts that we could and should be aware of today, like materialism, consumerism and greed, a desire for worldly power and fame. Certainly, there are churches in our country today that have been corrupted by a liberal attitude towards sex and sexuality, and there are churches that are corrupted by a legalistic attitude as well. But Jesus is referring to something that's specific to Pharisees and Herod. Now, that's interesting because those two groups, on the surface, are enemies. They have very little in common. The Pharisees were patriotic Jews. They firmly believed in the authority of Scripture. They believed that they and the people of Israel should live morally pure lives. Herod, on the other hand, wasn't even a Jew. He was beholding to Rome. And and he lived a very wicked and immoral life. What could these two possibly have in common? Well, obviously a distrust of and hatred for Jesus, right? We see that. Uh, But specifically, they both asked Jesus for signs. Look back with me at verses 11 through 13, okay? In between the the end of the miracle of feeding the 4,000 and this conversation in the boat, it says in verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test Him, they asked Him for a sign from heaven. Because, you know, feeding 4,000 people with a little lunch is, you know, not a sign enough, right? And so He sighed deeply. Jesus is frustrated. He said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. And that's why he's got this on his mind. And he's warning the, 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 the disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Because the Gospels also tell us that Herod was intrigued by Jesus and asked Jesus to give him signs for who he was. Now, why is it so wrong to demand a sign from Jesus? I mean, aren't all the miracles Jesus performed signs meant to point people to His divinity? Yes. But when we demand a sign from God, that itself is a sign. A sign of our unbelief. And that's why Jesus was warning them of the yeast of unbelief. See, Jesus had already begun to see this unbelief was growing even in His own disciples. Let's go, go back to verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, oh, it's because we have no bread. And they think Jesus is getting on to them about forgetting bread by bringing up yeast. And so, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Now, how is it possible that those closest to Jesus, chosen and changed by Jesus, who had witnessed so many miracles, how could they not have solid, unwavering faith in Him? Well, you know, familiarity may not necessarily breed contempt, but it does breed complacency, doesn't it? It can breed complacency. It's like Jesus' miracles had become so commonplace, they no longer moved or inspired the disciples. And that seems amazing to us, but you know, it makes, makes me think of this example. Back in the, in the, by the mid-1980s, by 1985, the space shuttle program had become so commonplace that people were no longer paying attention to it. Isn't that amazing? Here's the most sophisticated machine ever made by man, launching seven people into orbit and then landing them as an airplane. And when in the early 1980s, 80, 81, 82, 83, 
Every school child would watch a launch. Right? They'd will the TV in. You'd watch it in school. But by about 1984-85, it had become so commonplace, people were no longer inspired. And that's what led the whole, let's put a teacher in space, Krista McAuliffe, and then sadly the Challenger disaster was a wake-up call to Americans that this really is an amazing thing we're doing and it's a dangerous thing. These astronauts are brave American heroes. The same thing was happening to the disciples. I mean, here they had just witnessed Jesus for the second time miraculously feed a crowd with 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 the little boy's lunch. And here they're worried about not having enough lunch just for the few of them in the boat. It's crazy. But let's look in the mirror. How often are we guilty of the same thing? Now, I'm, I'm ashamed at how often I worry. I worry about church. I worry about a worship service. I worry about an event we're pulling off. I worry about how can we afford to fix this elevator that's going to cost so much money to fix or how are we going to afford to replace this air conditioner. And you know what? God always comes through. Amen. I mean, I have to tell you, this time last year, especially March, April, and May, when the pandemic struck and we shut things down for six weeks and then we started to slowly come back and I was worried about finances. Are people going to give? And the future is uncertain. People's finances are uncertain. Their, their jobs are uncertain. Are we going to be able to make it financially? I worried about this. It kept me up at night. And you know what? In many ways, 2020 was a record year of giving. We had amazing finances last year, thanks to your faithfulness and God's faithfulness. But now that we're back, here in 2021, I find myself worrying again. Worrying about attendance. Are people going to come back? Are our numbers going to get back to what it, what it was before the, the pandemic? Why do I do this? Why do I worry about this? God's got this. He's never let us down. But unbelief keeps us blind to Jesus' presence and power in our lives. Why does our faith waver? Well, Jesus used His disciples' lack of understanding. They're being so consumed with worry over a minor physical need that He was more than willing and more than able to meet. He used this to explain how they failed in three ways. And these three failures explain to us why we struggle with the yeast of unbelief. So the next thing is a failure to understand. We see a failure to understand on the part of the disciples. Jesus goes on, he says, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Jesus implies that their lack of understanding was due to the hardness of their hearts. Now, several weeks ago, I preached a message from Mark 6 about blind eyes and hard hearts. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you missed that one. The disciples are just mirroring us. They're mirroring humanity at large. We get so stuck in our own world and in our own cares that we become blind and deaf to God. Here the disciples were anxious about lack of bread. Jesus is concerned about their lack of faith. You know, only once in Mark's Gospel does hard heart refer to the Pharisees, but twice it refers to the disciples. And after the feeding of the 5,000, The disciples get in the boat, they cross over the lake, and a storm comes up. Jesus has stayed behind to pray, and so they're panicking. This this, this great wind has come up, and so Jesus comes walking out on the water to them. Remember what they just seen Jesus do? Jesus comes walking, and they're terrified. They're terrified at seeing Jesus walking, but they panic more, and this moment reveals how little they understood 
who Jesus was or what He could do. In fact, Mark describes it this way. They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now, here's the thing about a hard heart. You can't harden your heart towards someone or something that you're ignorant about. You can only harden your heart towards someone or something that you at least know something about. And that is why those who are closest to Jesus stand in the gravest danger of having hard hearts. Our problem is familiarity. The disciples repeated exposure to Jesus' teachings because if we don't reflect on, and more importantly, if we don't act on Jesus' teachings, we can become increasingly ambivalent, insensitive, dull, and hardened to God's Word. And that's a big problem in the Bible Belt. Because the problem that we have here is like a vaccine, right? If you want to get vaccinated like against COVID, they put just like a little bit of that virus inside of you so that your body fights it and builds up an immunity. Well, there are a lot of people around us today that get just enough Jesus, just enough cultural Christianity, just enough church that it's like they build up an immunity to really seeing and knowing and understanding God's transforming power. And this failure to understand is compounded by a failure to look and listen. Jesus then asks, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? The disciples had seen Jesus do some truly amazing things. They had heard Jesus teach with power and authority. They even had the privilege of Jesus explaining His parables to them. So the problem wasn't they didn't have eyes or ears or an opportunity to see and hear. The problem was they weren't soaking it in. They weren't appropriating what they were seeing and hearing. It was going in one side and coming out the other, in other words. I don't think it's any coincidence that before this miracle of feeding the 4,000, at the beginning of chapter 8, before that miracle, Jesus heals a deaf man. And now after that miracle, one the disciples once again fail to understand, Jesus is going to heal a blind man. He heals a deaf man. He heals a blind man. Mark is making an important connection for us. These two miracles point to a greater miracle, one the disciples desperately needed. They needed Jesus to open their ears to hear His message and open their eyes to see His power. The disciples were struggling with unbelief because they failed to understand who Jesus was and what He was doing. And why did they fail to understand? Because they failed to look and listen. And as any parent or teacher or maybe wife will tell you, there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? They were hearing, they were seeing, but they weren't listening. They weren't understanding. And because of that, and, and I think the reason for that is a failure to remember. Jesus then goes on in verse 18. He says, and don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? I can just hear them sheepishly say, twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. I said to them, do you still not understand? It's a failure to remember. You know, it always surprises people to discover the most repeated commands in the Bible because they're not what you think they would be. Do you know what the most often repeated command in all the Bible is? Fear not. Do not fear. But right behind it are the commands, praise the Lord, rejoice, give thanks, and remember. And I think all five of those commands are connected, but the key is to remember. 
And that word occurs over 200 times in the Bible. When we fail to remember who God is, what God has done, what He has both promised us and commanded us in His Word, that's when we become fearful. But when we remember, we fight back our fears. When we remember, we have cause to rejoice and to give thanks and to praise the Lord. But without taking the time to remember, we're not going to do any of those things. Why is it that God so frequently tells His people to remember? Because He knows how easily we forget. Amen? He knows how easily we forget. And that's why God has given us His written Word to help us remember His commands, His promises, His past acts of faithfulness. And if the disciples had just remembered, if they had just remembered a passage like Isaiah 35, what a difference it would have made. In Isaiah 35, the Lord says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. When we fail to remember, we're less likely to look and to listen for God. And that keeps us from fully understanding. And that's why our hearts can grow so hard so dull, so doubting. You know, all of these are intertwined, aren't they? And they tell us something very important about biblical faith. And it's this, it's this. Biblical faith is never blind. God never asks us to take a blind leap of faith. Ours is a faith that always seeks to understand. God gave us minds. He gave us hearts. He intends us to use both. God wants us to understand. But we've allowed the yeast of unbelief to infiltrate our hearts and our churches. When we worry over minor things like having enough bread to eat, we have forgotten that the bread of life is in the boat with us. We have to remember what Jesus said, that if we seek first Him and His kingdom, all these other things will be added to us as well. God knows we need them. We don't have to chase after them like the pagans do. On our trip out west to the Grand Canyon, I know Abby and, and her cousin Troy, who was riding with us, I know they got tired of hearing me say, hey, hey kids, look at that. Hey, kids, look at this over here. Yeah. But I didn't want them to miss out. I knew their tendency to be in their electronics, to be watching the, the TV, and I didn't want them to miss out on the sights and the views and the changing landscape. And we're the same way. We fail to look up to listen, to look around, to see what God is doing in our lives, to look back at what He has done in the past, both in Scripture and in our personal histories. We fail to look and listen and remember. We need regular personal time in God's Word to help us to remember so we can give thanks and praise to Him, so we don't have to worry and be fearful. We need to gather together as a body so we can remind each other of God's presence and power in our lives. These are ways we can avoid that spiritual nearsightedness. And Jesus demonstrates this in this miraculous healing of the blind man where we discover how Jesus can help us see clearly. Let's pick it up in verse 14. I'm sorry, in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? 
He looked up and said, I see people who look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes and his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Now, this story has so many parallels to last week's story of Jesus healing the deaf mute man, right? In both stories, people bring the people to Jesus. Jesus takes them outside away from the crowds. Jesus spits and touches them on the the areas that are being affected. And once again, I think Mark is recording these details to show us a deeper spiritual truth, how Jesus can restore our own spiritual sight. Let's look at that very quickly. First, we see Jesus takes our hand. What a beautiful picture of our good and gentle shepherd as Jesus. Just picture him taking this man's hand gently but firmly and leading him outside of the town. That means that Jesus is guiding him step by step around obstacles. Jesus is verbally giving the man instructions about where to step and not to step. When the man stumbles, Jesus is there to steady him. When the man is hesitant, Jesus is there to encourage him onward. What a beautiful picture of how the Holy Spirit pursues us woos us, calls us away from the worldly distractions. Why did Jesus want to bring him out of the village? Because the village was noisy. It was bustling, people bumping into them. Because this man couldn't see, Jesus wanted to make sure that he could hear his voice and feel his touch. Jesus wanted him to know who the source of this healing would be. Jesus does the same for us. He invites us away from the distractions. Listen to this invitation Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites each of us. He calls us to step away from the distractions, from the hustle and bustle, from the noise of the world around us to focus on His voice and His presence. And for those who are, who are lost in their sins or who are young and immature in their faith, Jesus wants to take you by the hand and draw you to Himself. He wants to lead you into a relationship with Him, one that grows deeper and sweeter day by day, but we must follow. He takes our hand, but like this blind man, we have to be willing to follow Him. Secondly, we see Jesus touches our eyes. You know, Jesus, just like with the deaf-mute man, He spits on the man and touches him. Now, this kind of seems strange to us today and kind of gross in a COVID world, right? You're not supposed to do that. Where's your mask? But one Bible scholar explains the power of this symbolism this way. Touch means more than sound to a blind man. And only by touch could the Lord's meaning be conveyed. It was powerful. This man needed the touch of Jesus. Just like when Jesus looked upward for the deaf man, he was signifying where the source of this healing was coming. So by touching this man, Jesus was personalizing his approach to meet this man at his point of need. And whatever your need, wherever you are on your journey, Jesus wants to meet you there. He wants to touch you and heal you, but you must surrender. Jesus wants to touch us, but we have to let Him touch our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, whatever part of our lives need His transforming power. Maybe you're worrying or struggling over your finances. Open up your checkbook and let Jesus touch it. Surrender it to Him and let Jesus do with your finances what you can't do with it. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage with your children 
or with a situation or a person at work. Surrender it to Jesus. Give it to Him and let Him touch it and transform it. Yes, it may require you make a change. Yes, it may not be easy. It may be costly. It may even be painful. But it will be worth it because remember, whatever Jesus does, He does all things well. And if we surrender to His touch, then we see Jesus restores our sight. But we must look. We must look. Notice this man's sight is restored. And and it's restored in a way that's unparalleled in the Gospel. And people get kind of confused because it's like a two-step miracle. And people say, well, was Jesus not powerful enough to do it on one try? He had to to take a, a second take at it? Or people say maybe it was the man's faith. He didn't have enough faith to really... See, the text doesn't say anything about his faith. And of course we know Jesus could just snap his fingers, speak a word, think the thought, and the man would be well. So what's going on here? I believe Jesus is using this miracle to show His disciples their own sight can grow by stages. Jesus is illustrating that spiritual sight comes slowly over time as we let Jesus continue to work in our lives. And that's good news. Because if you're like me, you get frustrated with yourself and you wonder, am I ever going to get it? Am I ever going to be able to live this life for Jesus? Is is God going to one day just give up on me? We can remember that although the things of God may seem fuzzy and blurry right now, like trees walking around, God isn't finished with you yet. Like the old kid's song goes, He's still working on me. Amen? Or as Paul puts it in Philippians 1, being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not going to give up on you. You're a work in progress. Spiritual maturity is not instantaneous. Yes, the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are saved from the penalty of sin. But every day, by the power of His indwelling Holy Spirit, by the truth of His Word, and the support and encouragement of His people, we are being saved every day from the power of sin. As He sanctifies us, as He conforms us day by day, more and more into the image of Jesus. And y'all, that's a life long journey. Coming to faith in Jesus is just the first step, but there's many steps to follow. When Jesus appeared to Saul and called him, you know, on the road to Damascus from being a persecutor of the church to being an evangelist and a missionary of the church, and he told him that he was going to be an evangelist to the Gentiles, Jesus described his ministry this way. His job was to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. It's that sanctification where our sight gets clearer and clearer every day as Jesus takes our hand and we follow Him in faith, professing Him as Lord, as we surrender to His touch and He brings His his transforming power to our lives. And we embark on a lifelong journey following Him seeing Him more and more clearly every day. You know, when Jesus asked this man, do you see anything? That also was a question for the disciples. It echoes the question He asked them in verse 18. Do you still not see? Do you still not see? Do you see anything? Jesus wanted His disciples to know, and He wants us to know, that He would patiently help them and us to see Him more clearly. God's revelation is a gift. 
But it's one that we open and we learn and we use slowly. It's a process. It's not accomplished by human reason alone. It's a gift from God and it takes time. And really we can think of the disciples' faith journey in stages and our own faith journey in stages similar to this man's healing. And really, this phrase here in verse 25, his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, he saw everything clearly. That's almost like an outline for the rest of the Gospel of Mark. And we see here in chapter 8 a lack of understanding. that They don't quite understand. They don't get who Jesus is. It's like Jesus is just now opening up their eyes. But then beginning in verse 27 is Peter at Caesarea Philippi makes this amazing confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says that was not given to you. You didn't figure that out on your own. That was revealed to you by God. So it's like they're beginning to have their sight restored. They're beginning to see and understand, but they don't understand fully because in the very next paragraph, Jesus is rebuking Peter, calling him Satan. Because he still doesn't understand. But then there's the Mount of Transfiguration, where once again their eyes are opened a little bit more to see who Jesus is. They go from misunderstanding to partial understanding to a growing understanding, but they don't see things clearly. They don't understand perfectly. They don't have full sight until the resurrection in Mark 15, 39. That's when they know. That's when they understand. That and when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, they've got full sight. And like the blind man, they see everything clearly. But you know what? We stand on this side of the resurrection, don't we? We stand on this side of the day of Pentecost. We have the indwelling Spirit of God. We have the fullness of His Word. What's our excuse? Why do we fail to see Jesus clearly? Now listen, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're lost in your blindness. You're in spiritual darkness. We're all born that way. But Jesus wants to take your hand. Will you follow Him? Jesus wants to touch your heart and your mind and give you sight. Will you surrender to Him as your Lord and your Savior? I invite you today, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, as we sing in just a moment, you can come right now today and say, I'm blind. I don't know Jesus. I'm lost in my sins, but I want to see Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want Him in my life. You can come today and He can touch you and give you sight. And you can begin to see things clearly. I pray you would do that today. But for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, we've experienced that saving touch of His hand What do we need to do? Well, we need to be intentional to look and listen. We need to look into His Word and remember God's goodness and His faithfulness and His promises. We need to daily submit to His Holy Spirit's work. And maybe today, you need to come to this altar and surrender yourself anew and afresh to Jesus' healing touch. You've let the things of this world kind of cloud your vision. You've let things get in the way and they're blocking your sight. I invite you to come today and pray at this altar. Come and I'll be glad to pray with you and just say, Jesus, I need you to touch me again. I know I'm saved. I know I belong to you, but I've I've let myself get distracted. I need you to lead me away back to you. I invite you to come and do that today. But maybe God is just calling you to this church family. You've been worshiping with us and you know this is the place. These are the people that you want to help remind you of who God is and all He does. We invite you to come.
and be a part of our church family. Would you stand and pray with me, Father? We are so thankful that in Your mercy and grace You love us as we are. You sent Your Son to save us blind and lost and stumbling in the dark as we are. And Jesus, You came that we might have sight. That You might take our hand and touch our eyes and lead us into a relationship with You and help us to see things clearly. And if there's anyone here today that needs to do that, they need to put their faith and trust in You, I pray that nothing would stop them. Maybe there's even a friend or a family member here who can take them and help lead them to Jesus just as this man's friends led him to Jesus. Father God, I pray for those of us that are believers that You would help us to keep our sight clear. Help us, God, to put spiritual lenses in our eyes to help us see You more clearly by looking into Your Word, by listening to Your Spirit, by worshiping with Your people, by getting out in this world and keeping our eyes open for where You're at work so we can join You there. And bring others to Jesus. God, forgive us for when we let the things of this world distract us and cloud our vision. And Father, if there's anybody here that you were leading to not with this church family, I pray they would come. That we can rejoice with them and welcome them as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask